You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. So as Reed said, uh, today uh, marks the beginning of this season of Advent. Uh, And this season of Advent has been historically known as a season uh, that that the church has observed in which it is a time of of expectation. It It is a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the nativity or the the birth of Jesus Christ uh, that we celebrate Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, depending on your culture, we celebrate Christmas Eve. But um, that's the beginning, and and today marks that day. It also marks the the beginning of our series in this book of uh, Matthew that will take us through uh, all the way to Easter with a short uh, break during Lent. And as you already know from the scripture reading by Reed, our text this morning deals with the genealogy of Jesus, right? And for some of us who may have read Matthew before, it's definitely a temptation to just kind of skim over this long portion of scripture where we hear about Jesus' ancestors. We kind of maybe glance at verse 1, maybe glance at verse 6, 12, and then 17 and continue on, right? But but. This morning, we'll find out why it would be wise to slow down and, and to carefully examine uh, Jesus' genealogy. So last week, my mother uh, shared with me uh, that a man by the name of Emiliano Zapata, which is a very revered Mexican revolutionary during the Mexican Revolution, is one of our ancestors. Uh, so when my mom shared that with me, as a, as a, especially as a history nerd, um, I'm going to be honest, I got full of pride. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, this man who helped start this revolution in Mexico is one of my ancestors. And, and she told me that last week. And so um, during that same week, though, uh, something that I, have been, I had been considering and asking God for clarity on, uh, God finally gave me that clarity. And it was uh, tied to someone who um, I'm not so proud of to be in my genealogy. Um, and don't have to go that far back to find him. It's my father. And so um, because of his lifestyle and the things that he's been involved in, uh, he's been in and out of prison for the last several years. Um, and, and really, the, 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 one of the sad things about it is that um, the reality of it is it's best for me, my wife, and our future children uh, to just keep our distance from him because of the things that he's involved in. And so as I was actually studying this portion of Scripture last week, I'm, I'm wrestling through this feeling of pride over someone in my genealogy while at the same time realizing that my own family tree has rotten fruit in it. And I found the genealogy of Jesus uh, to be a great source of grace and hope for someone like me. But I know I'm not alone, Right? I know that even as I speak these words, some of you here may be thinking of some people in your own genealogy, in your own family tree, maybe, uh, that you prefer not to speak of. Or if you're, if you're more like me, then maybe you realize that before Christ, you were the rotten fruit in the tree. You were the black sheep of the family as I was. And we'll see this morning that... Uh, Looking at Jesus' genealogy, we're presented with, with a Jesus whose genealogical skeletons were not hidden in the closet, 
but they were displayed by Matthew for all the world to see. And my hope is that we can draw a grace and a hope for us from this scripture. That Jesus' genealogy reminds us that he came to give hope to the broken, to the shamed, and to the sinner. So to give you some background and some context of this book, book before we, we jump in, uh, Matthew was written uh, somewhere between 48 and 50 AD, and it was written by Matthew specifically to a Jewish audience. And so these, these readers were primarily Jews, and so Matthew was seeking to prove to the Jewish people that Christ was indeed the Messiah, the King of Israel, the one who would usher in the kingdom of God. And so accordingly, um, Matthew mentions the kingdom of God in this book somewhere, of, uh, somewhere around 28 times. So the kingdom of God and this theme is huge in this book. And he also makes numerous connections to the Old Testament scriptures as well, whether explicitly or implicitly. And of course, with a genealogy like this, we could, we could be here for in five to six hours, especially with a history nerd like me, diving into each name. But we won't do that. Right? We won't, thank God, we won't do that. But I do want to answer three basic questions as we look at Jesus' genealogy, and we will focus on a few people in his genealogy. But I want to answer these three simple questions. What does Jesus' genealogy say about him or his, his purpose and his person? What does it say about him? What does it say about the gospel? And what does it say to us today? And so what does Jesus' genealogy say about Jesus? And to get a better understanding of the significance of Jesus' birth in that specific time period, we need to understand the historical context of Israel and the state of Israel at that time. After the last prophet of the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God to God's people, the Jewish people underwent a time that, that scholars and theologians call a prophetic silence. And this prophetic silence lasted for 400 years. So try to imagine the people of Israel Right, going through this, uh, this time period of about 400 years where no word from God was spoken. And so much so that the people of Israel living in the time of Jesus' birth only had the Torah or the Old Testament and the oral tradition to tell them about uh, the, these times, these ancient times when God would speak through his prophets. All they had was stories and all they had was the scripture, but they were not experiencing that. They had no idea what it looked like. And 400 years is enough to even, uh, you know, look at your great-grandparents and even they had no clue of what this felt like to live in a time where God spoke through his prophets. This means that many of the people of Israel grew weary of waiting. Others, like the Pharisees, went astray in their own self-righteousness and sought to establish their own set of righteousness, uh, righteous laws that um, honestly they, they began to uh, value more than the law of God itself. Did others like a man named Simeon that you find in Luke chapter 2 remain steadfast in his eager anticipation for this promised Messiah? 
And Simeon was given the great privilege of having his faith become sight. Having waited his entire life for the Savior of Israel, God granted him this privilege of seeing this baby, this Jesus, born into this world. They were eager, the people of Israel were eager for a Messiah to come, especially since they were at that time under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. The people were crying out for a Savior, Savior of Israel. And this is the spiritual atmosphere at this time when Christ was born. They were eager for this Messiah that was promised to Eve, that was promised to Abraham, and that was promised to David. They were eager for him to come. As we look at this genealogy, we see we see that Matthew divided this genealogy into three sets of 14, right? Now bear with me here. Three sets of 14, if you do some math, it's six sets of seven. Right, six sets of seven. That would make Jesus the one who, who begins the seventh generation of seven. And, and when we go back to Leviticus 25, you don't have to turn there. I'll just summarize it for you. God commands the Jewish people to rest their lands from crop growing every seventh year. So every seventh year was a Sabbath year for the people of Israel, for their land, allowing their land to replenish. And then on the eighth year, they would continue to grow crops and they would continue to use their land and, and, and until the, the, the seventh year again and so on and so forth. But when they reached the, seven, the seventh set of seven years, God instituted what is known as the year of Jubilee. And during the year of Jubilee, slaves were set free, all debts were forgiven, and the people in the land were to rest from their weariness and their labor. And so the seventh seven, or the Sabbath of Sabbaths, was was a foretaste of the final rest and ultimate rest that God would give his people, that, that his people will experience when God renews the earth. And so by Matthew organizing Jesus' genealogy in this set, he did have to skip over certain generations. But if he did that, that means that there was something that he wanted to get across specifically to the Jewish mind. And the Jewish mind particularly was fascinated with numerology. So needless to say, genealogies were extremely important to the Jewish people, but not just to the Jewish people. It was important in general in that time period. It was important to everyone. During that time, genealogies were looked at as one's resume. And today, in an individualistic culture that we live in, we we present ourselves, we present our degrees, we present our work experience as a way to, to present who we are to people, but that's not how it was done back then. They lived in an Eastern culture, a familial culture. And so your genealogy was your resume. It's no surprise then that when Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham, he's reminding the Jewish audience, hey, uh, this Jesus that is proclaiming himself to be the Messiah that I'm telling you is the Messiah is a son of Abraham. And this was essential, right? Because God promised Abraham that he would be, through him, 
God would bless all nations. So it was essential that he included Abraham. It was also essential that he included King David. Right? Because God also promised to King David that it was one of his sons that would assume the throne and rule in righteousness forever over God's people. But after he does this, after he, he mentions Abraham and he mentions David, Matthew does something here uh, that's, that's shocking. That would be shocking to the Jewish reader in that time and really anyone that read it in that time. God, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Matthew includes women in the genealogy of Jesus. But not just one. Matthew includes five. And some of those women that Matthew included brothers and sisters, were Gentiles, and they didn't have the best track record. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this move done by Matthew. He says, this will not strike modern readers as unusual, but in ancient patriarchal societies, a woman was virtually never named in such lists, let alone five of them. You could call women gender outsiders in those cultures, yet they are in Jesus' genealogy. Also, most of the women in Jesus' resume were Gentiles, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They were Canaanites and Moabites. To the ancient Jews, these nations were unclean. They weren't allowed into the tabernacle or temple to worship. We could call them racial outsiders. And yet they are in Jesus' genealogy. And this is a prime example of the uplifting of women in the Bible and uh, discrediting the lie that Christianity by nature is oppressive to women. And there's another aspect to this that's also surprising. Matthew, uh, naming some of these women, causes his readers to remember some of the most immoral indecencies found in the Bible. And I want to highlight just a couple women here. We see in verse 3, uh, Tamar is mentioned. And if you go back to Genesis 38, Go back and read it when you have time if you haven't read it. Tamar commits incest with her father-in-law, Judah. And so Tamar, to give you a brief synopsis of this, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons, but he commits evil in the sight of the Lord, and so God kills him. And so Judah gives Tamar over to one of his other sons. But this son knew that the child he, had, he would have with Tamar would never be considered his own, but his brother his brothers, who was already dead. And so he doesn't ever get her pregnant. And so in the sight of the Lord, that was evil, and he dies as well. And so this woman, Tamar, was left now childless, and Judah considered her cursed. And so because women were valued only by what they could offer, like sons, right? She dresses as a prostitute, by the way, and lures Judah in and is impregnated by Judah. So we have lying, we have like, prostitution. Rahab as well was a woman who was known as a prostitute in Jericho. But this woman's story is a bit perplexing because though she is named as a prostitute in Jericho, she, she, she shows some of the greatest faith from people in this genealogy. Rahab hides two spies from Israel who had gone into Jericho. And when king, the king of Jericho had heard of it, he sent people over to Rahab's home, but she hid the two spies from Israel. And she knew, she says she knew that the favor of God was upon these men. And so she risked her life to save these two spies from 
Israel. And then, of course, uh, we, we can't forget Mary, right? The mother of Jesus. And when we retell the story of the birth of Christ and we talk about Mary, as we should, we remember her, her great faith, her trust, and her submission to the will of God. But we must also remember that Mary was a peasant girl, a teenage girl, unmarried yet betrothed to Joseph, marginalized, impoverished, and oppressed under the Roman Empire. And please let this sink in that in all of our retellings we must remember that Mary was part of the lowest of the low, the class that was at the bottom. And yet Christ chose to come into this world through a woman such as this, not through a princess in a lofty castle, but through a marginalized, impoverished woman. And one last person in this genealogy that I want to go back to is King David. And though he, he does have his, his royal bloodline, right, and, and God did promise him that through him would come the Messiah, Matthew does something here in this genealogy that the Jewish reader and the Jewish mind would have known very well what he was doing. In verse 6, it says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why, why does Matthew not write Bathsheba in there? We know that the name is Bathsheba. But instead of writing Bathsheba, he writes the wife of Uriah, reminding the Jewish people what David had done to Uriah. David, one of the examples, is one of the greatest falls in Scripture. And the story is that David lusted after this woman, Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife, yes, Bathsheba, takes her in as his own, uses his power to bring her in, and then sends Uriah out to war on the front lines so that he could be one of the first killed. So not only does he commit adultery, he commits murder. Why, why is Matthew so publicly displaying the skeletons in Jesus' genealogical closet? What does this say about Jesus? This means that Jesus came to truly be one of us, brothers and sisters. It means that he didn't come for the righteous, but to call sinners unto repentance. It means that he came to offer belonging and hope and rest to the weary outcasts, to those marginalized by societies which have historically acted unjustly towards the lowly. A historian by the name of Justo Gonzalez says this about Jesus' genealogy. He says, we are comforted when we read the genealogy of Jesus and find there not only a Gentile like ourselves, but also incest and what amounts to David's rape of Bathsheba. The gospel writer did not hide the skeletons in Jesus' closet, but listed them so that we may know that the Savior has really come to be one of us not just one of the high and mighty, the aristocratic with impeccable bloodlines, but one 
of us. So if Jesus truly came to be one of us, what does this say? What does his genealogy say about the gospel? What does it say to us today? If indeed he came as a lowly Messiah, then it means that the gospel gives hope to broken people like you and me whose families may have been marred with stains and histories that are too shameful to speak of. Even in your own life, if you have shame in your past that you seem to not be able to get over, the hope of the gospel is that Christ offers you a new name. He offers you a new inheritance. Let me read Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 for you. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For those, for those of you who know very well the, the skeletons in your own closet, even your own genealogical closets, this gospel, this lowly Messiah offers you and offers me hope. A new inheritance and a new name, as I said. And this also means that the gospel levels the playing field in Christ, the Jew and the Gentile the oppressed and the oppressor. God now levels the playing field. Those who thought themselves high and lofty, God brings them low. And those who have been marginalized and low, God raises them up. In Christ, God levels the playing field. There is no social class. There is no caste system in the kingdom of God. The gospel also gives us rest from our works. If indeed Jesus was the beginning of the seventh seven, alluding back to Leviticus, 40, uh, Le- Leviticus 25 and the year of Jubilee, then this means that Christ in his coming came to proclaim rest for the people of God. He came to proclaim rest from our weary works and labor. And we now no longer have to oh, think that we can obtain our own righteousness. But Christ came and openly proclaimed that it is found in Him. This means we can lay our shame from our past before Christ, knowing that He stretches out His hand of grace to us, much like He did to Mary Magdalene. In the face of condemnation from the law, Christ looks at her and says, is who, who is there left to condemn you? I, I myself don't condemn you. Rise up and go and sin no more. And Christ offering grace to a woman like her. And he's, he's offering that same grace to us as well. This also tells us that our Savior, when that 
Israel eagerly anticipated associates with the lowly, with the marginalized, and with the oppressed. What does this mean for us? It means that um, if, if you don't have a history of feeling marginalized, if you don't have a history of feeling oppressed, and this means that you can enter into this world and especially into the conversation and the state of our nation today with a lowly spirit and an ear willing to listen. And if you've been marginalized and if you have felt as an outcast, socially, racially, whatever it may be, Christ reminds you of the dignity that you have in Christ, of the inheritance that we now have in Christ, that He, with Christ, together with Him, has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Jesus' genealogy reminds you that you are precious in His sight regardless of how you may have been treated. As James tells us in, in, in chapter 1, verse 9, and the beginning of verse 10, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. A genealogy of Jesus is indeed dripping with grace, brothers and sisters. It reminds us that he did indeed come to give hope to the broken, to the shamed, and to the sinner. And as I bring this sermon to a close, I want us once again to remember Simeon. How much eagerness he had in waiting for the Messiah, remembering. Remembering his eager anticipation should fill us with immense gratitude. We no longer have to wait for his first coming. We can celebrate that coming while we eagerly anticipate his second also filled with gratitude at the fact that we, we now experience the privileges of this new covenant, of His first coming, of the fact that His Spirit now dwells inside us, comforts us in our afflictions, empowers us to live a godly life, and produces joy out of suffering. And as we enter into this season of Advent, let us do so with a spirit much like that of Simeon. When Christmas Eve comes, we might share the joy that he experienced when he, when he saw that his faith was made sight. We know that our joy is indeed twofold. We celebrate his first coming while we eagerly anticipate his second, when he will finally make all things new and this Sabbath rest that he has promised to his people we will fully enjoy it forever with him. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you, Christ, that you willfully came into this slum known as earth to redeem um, a broken people, to redeem, redeem a people full of shame, a people who are sinners, Father. We thank you that you, uh, through even his genealogy in Christ, uh, showed us that he came to be one of us, to ransom, to ransom us back to you, Father. Help us today to believe this grace, to cling to this hope as we start 
this Advent season, God, in eager anticipation for the celebration of your birth, Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.